What a privilege to open God's Word together this morning. And, and like I said, if this is your first time in church, if it's your 500th, we're glad that you're here. Um, and one of the things that we do each Sunday is we open the Bible and we consider, importantly, what it says, but then also what it says to me and what it says to you. And that's an important part of Christian life or of pursuing or exploring faith is to think not just about what it's saying, but what is it saying to me. And so today we're going to uh, get into considering um, this Easter story and we're going to actually go to a fairly odd place to do it. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm giving you lots of warning. We're losing this, I think, uh, to turn to John chapter 11. But before we get there, I wonder if, um, if you're into sport, because I am a bit of a sports fan. And, and one of the things uh, that I found during lockdowns was that uh, uh, all the sports stopped. So it was a little bit frustrating because, you know, the season stopped, cricket stopped, um, and everything else. But what didn't stop was KO and some of the channels on there that had the most random sports that you could imagine. And so I got into dodgeball. There is actually broadcast dodgeball championships. There's some serious stuff. I got into cherry pip spitting. I kid you not. There is actually televised cherry pip spitting. I got into rock skimming and discovered that they are much better uh, than I am at it. I uh, got into lawnmower racing. Uh, and if you don't believe me, uh, kid you not, look at it up on YouTube. They race right on lawnmowers. All of these things televised. Uh, and, I, and I watched uh, lots and lots of things. And, and hopefully that paints you this picture. I can just watch anything as long as it's uh, competitive. And so I got, I got into that, but I think the thing that extends across any sport, maybe not so much rock skimming, but certainly lawn racing and uh, football and cricket and all the sports that you might like, is the great comeback. When it looks like uh, all hope is gone, when a team is way, way, way behind uh, and they manage to come back. It's like watching anyone play the Raiders. That seems to happen uh, every time the Raiders roll out. You get to see a great comeback from the opposition. But I actually remember sitting at Brookvale Oval down in Manly many years ago. I'm a big Manly fan. If you're not, I'll pray for you later. Um, but I remember watching this. We were behind by masses. And I just remember ads sitting next to me saying, we can still win this. We can still win this. The, the eternal optimist. Uh, and sure, we, we sat there and watched as try after try after try was scored. Manly just came from nowhere. If you're not a Manly fan, maybe you can connect with Stephen Bradbury's amazing moment at the Winter Olympics. So if you're over the age of probably about 30, you remember it. Because I couldn't believe it, that it was in 2002. Can you believe that? Stephen Bradbury, uh, probably the most, the slowest uh, speed skater to ever win a gold medal, uh, started the finals. They all went way in front of him. You might have seen the footage. But Stephen Bradbury waited way, way, way back. They all fell over, and guess what happened? He crossed the line first. We, we love a comeback. There's a saying in the sporting world of uh, continuing to play, keep playing until the siren sounds, or, or keep going until time is finally up to that. Final whistle is blown, and I think it resonates so deeply because all of us are fairly hopeful people. We like to think that there is always hope, whether it's on the sporting field or not. And maybe there's a moment in your life, whether it's in sport or whether it's in uh, just a, a personal setting in a business, 
where it looked like all hope was gone and somehow, miraculously, turned it around with one last-ditch effort and there was an incredible comeback. I think we all have that hope, don't we? And just like uh, on the sporting field, there is a siren that sounds that marks the finish point. I say to you this morning that there is also a siren that rings over each one of our lives. There's a siren that rings over each one of our lives. There's this very famous saying. uh, It actually dates all the way back to 1720. And this saying in 1720 is that there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. You've probably heard it. It's been uh, rephrased in, in many different Uh, in many different ways. But death is the siren that sounds over every life. It's unrelenting. It often comes without warning. It's undiscriminating. It strikes the young and it strikes the old. strikes the wealthy and the poor. It strikes those who consider themselves to have lived good lives and it strikes those who by every uh, external measure are wicked. It's universally shared across countries and cultures, across past and present. And although we know that it's a fact of life, I'd say to you this morning that we are often still shocked by the finality of it, that it strikes and it's there and it represents an end for which there is no comeback. Now, you've all gone very, very quiet and still this morning, but there is hope. And that's what we're going to look at in these passages in John 11. Like I said, not the traditional place that you might turn up on an Easter Sunday and expect the focus of the message to be, but actually a little bit earlier in Jesus's ministry. And so if you've got it there, we're going to pick it up at verse 17. But before we get to verse 17, it's important to note that Jesus was out in the wilderness The religious leaders didn't like what he'd been saying. They didn't like the fact that he'd been doing miracles. They were worried about the power that he was suddenly getting with the people. And so he and the disciples had gone out into the wilderness because Jesus knew the time of his death had not yet come and the religious leaders were plotting to kill him. And so he'd gone out into the wilderness and a, a messenger comes to him to tell him that his dear friend Lazarus has uh, is sick, is very unwell. In fact, the messenger says it twice. And, and we also discover something important that Jesus says that Jesus loves Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And although he does consider them to be dear friends, he stays right where he is. And in verse four of that passage, he declares that Lazarus's sickness won't end in death. And I want you to take note of that. But rather, Lazarus's sickness has happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And we're going to uh, watch that as it unfolds. And what we see is that two days later after this messenger has come, Jesus commences this journey back to the town of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. And it's a day's journey from where he was. And so he arrives in John chapter, oh, sorry. Do you want to go back to that first slide? Sorry. Uh, We pick it up in 17 where it says this. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem and many of the people come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises in the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives 
in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. We see at the start of the passage that when Jesus arrives in the town of Bethany, he's met by mourners, he's met by Martha, and he discovers very quickly that uh, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. And it's significant to note that on a couple of levels because uh, medical science was um, not particularly advanced back then. So it wasn't that uncommon for people to appear dead for a day or two and then be roused back to life. But uh, the Jews also had this, um, this belief that when you died, your, your um, soul hovered over your body for three days and then it departed when decay set in. And obviously this is, this is occurring in the Middle East uh, with the weather as it is over there. It makes sense that by the fourth day when Jesus arrives, that Lazarus has been dead, Martha makes this point in verse 38 uh, when Jesus has said, roll away the stone, she says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. I actually love the King James Version here that says, he stinketh. That was the reality, was that he'd been dead, his body is decaying and he stinketh. Uh, the point here is clear that even if there was hope, even if they were holding out that maybe Lazarus had, had slipped into a coma, that maybe there was some way that he could be restored back to life, the point now is that decay has set in, that Lazarus' life is gone and that the hope has also departed with it. And so we read this exchange then between Jesus and Martha and then Jesus and Mary, and both of whom express this incredible disappointment that Jesus had not come earlier. But in it, there's also incredible faith. You see, both of them, I think, are probably um, frustrated, maybe upset that Jesus, who was a dear friend of theirs and who considered them in the same way, had not come immediately because maybe there was hope. But if the timeline works out the way that it seems to, it appears that when that messenger actually got to Jesus, that Lazarus was already dead. The hope was already gone for Lazarus. And so Martha declares in verse 22, Jesus, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. 
Even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And, and Jesus tests her on this because he says to her, Martha, your brother will rise. And she responds with the good answer, the, the yes, I, I know the scriptures, that in the last day, everyone uh, will rise at the great resurrection at the end. And Jesus says to her, because she's thinking there is, no po- there is a possibility that one day this might happen. There is a possibility that a long time in the future, that all the dead will rise. But Jesus says this. He says, don't just think it will happen one day because I am the resurrection. I am the life. Don't think that death might one day no longer be the end because the one who has control over death, the resurrection and the life is standing right here in front of you. And I wonder if uh, she understood straight away what Jesus meant here. I wonder if if that makes sense in your mind as well, because Jesus isn't saying that death will no longer be a part of Lazarus's earthly reality. He's not saying it won't be part of Mary's or Martha's. He's not saying that it won't be a part of yours or mine. He's not saying that. But he is saying that your resurrection begins the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. Your resurrection Begins. That's when your spiritual resurrection begins with the promise of life beyond the grave. Ephesians 2, uh, the word should be up on the screen, puts it like this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. And then in verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. You see, Jesus is saying to Martha, and Ephesians 2 supports this, he's he's saying, and he's saying to Martha, he's saying to you and me, when you come into relationship with Christ, even if you were to die tomorrow, there is this miraculous resurrection that occurs that your relationship will not be broken at death. It will not stop. You'll pass through death into life with Jesus. And then in the story, Jesus says this and then he goes on and he demonstrates his power over death in a practical way, not by a resurrection of Lazarus because Lazarus actually walks out of the grave with the the, uh, grave clothes still attached to him, with the binding still on him, but a resuscitation of his body. You see, the thing that probably isn't great for Lazarus is that someday coming, whether it's a sickness or an accident or anything else in the ancient world, his physical body will die again. He'll have to experience that twice. But Jesus resuscitates him and gives this demonstration to the crowd that I have control over death. I have control over life. And I just want you to picture for a moment We have the disciples standing here watching this. I mean, there's a big crowd. There's family. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were well known. And so we know there's lots of mourners. But in this crowd are the disciples. And I imagine that they are amazed by this. Like, you've got to understand, they've seen Jesus heal the lepers, which the Jewish people believed was just like raising someone from the dead. Couldn't be done. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. And yet they see him now raise Lazarus from the dead. And they hear what Jesus is saying, but I don't think they really understand it because only a handful of chapters later, which we heard about this morning, John describes Jesus being arrested. 
He describes Jesus being beaten. He describes the torture and the crucifixion and horrific and painful death that Jesus goes through. And it was so shocking and so frightening to the disciples that what do they do? Flee. It was so shocking and frightening to them that they go and hide in an upper room, that they are afraid of not what, just what this means for them, but they are also afraid that the, that the Jews uh, might come after them next. They are still so unsure of all the things that Jesus had been saying to them. You see, he'd been saying to them, I've come, I've come to this debt. I've come to prepare a place for you. I have come so that you may have the resurrection and the life that I offer, that I promise. But they seem to have understood it. Because um, Sharon read this morning a passage from John 20. And in this passage, it tells us that a different Mary, Three days after Jesus' death, she turns up at his, his grave to mourn. And as she approaches the grave, she finds the tomb empty and thinking that Jesus' body had been stolen, she goes and fetches some of the other disciples and they come. And a couple of them enter the tomb and what they find there are the grave clothes there. They find Jesus' body gone and the text tells us that they realised that Jesus had to rise again. So in seeing Jesus' body gone, in understanding what has gone on, in knowing that the resurrection has occurred, they have realised he is the one who is greater even than death itself. They've realised that in doing so, he has defeated death not only for him, but for you and for me and for them. And what an incredible thing that is all of a sudden. Everything that Jesus has been teaching them, the things that they had seen and that they had heard, suddenly makes sense to them that he is the resurrection and the life. And so I, would, I want to um, close this morning with a, a, a question for you, a couple of questions for you to consider. You might recall at the start I said, this is an important part of opening God's word. He's, he's thinking, what is God saying to me? So I want to ask you this morning, how do you see death? How do you see death? See, over the years I've been to, um, I'm sure you all have too, I've been to quite a few funerals and there is really a stark difference in them because you go, you go to some that are just um, completely empty of hope where sorrow and pain are just completely overwhelming and it's a really horrible thing because the finality of death rings out and, and, and this really is, is a troubling thing. But I've also gone to funerals of people who know Jesus, and they have a mixture of two things. They have a mixture of tears and they have a mixture of truth. And we see both of those things play out uh, from Jesus himself because there is certainly the grief, there is certainly the mourning that occurs, and Jesus uh, demonstrates for us that that is okay. There is, there is the mourning and the grief that comes, and, and it, we read that Jesus cried those tears as well. But he didn't just cry tears, he also spoke truth. And that's what we see in death is not a finish, not an ending, but that those people have stepped into a fullness of life with Christ. They've stepped into a fullness of life with Christ. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 1, 20. The words will come up there. And he says this while he's languishing in prison, so things are not going rosy. He knows the reality of what is looming. 
And he writes these words, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ, as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ, whether I live or die. And then he says this, For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Kind of sounds crazy, doesn't it? For Paul to say, living is great, but dying is even better. You see, he knew that life gave him the opportunity to serve Christ, but living, uh, sorry, death promised him gain. It promised him something even better because in death there is life in Christ, a fullness of life that we have lying ahead of us for those of us who have an assurance of our salvation in Jesus. And so I'd say to you this morning, how do you see death? Does it ring in your mind as the end? Is there a, a complete finality to it? Or do you see the hope in it that Jesus speaks of? And the second question to finish this morning is how do you see life? How do you see life? It's easy to think in the verses that we read that, uh, Lazarus, that the most significant part of it is when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. You know, that's the climax of it, isn't it? It's the exciting moment. It's the moment everyone's been waiting for. Lazarus emerges from the tomb. But I'd actually say to you, the most amazing parts of that passage are not Lazarus come out because those words were for Lazarus. They're not for you and me. The most incredible part is verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Because while Lazarus come out was for Lazarus, these words are for you and I to consider. These words are for you and I to consider. And each of us needs to ask ourselves this question this Easter. Because when we think on Jesus as we do at Easter, it's part of uh, the celebration that we have. There's an incredible statement that sits with this that we must consider. Because we need to consider whether the person saying it whether this is the ravings of a madman who had no idea what he was saying, whether it was the manipulation of an evil man, or whether Jesus is who he says that he is, whether he is the resurrection and the life. And what I love about this passage that we've looked at is that Jesus shows that he cares not just about their future, he cares about their present. He goes to Mary and Martha and he comforts them in a time of trouble I'd say to you that when we know Jesus, there is not just hope in death, there is hope in the present. There is hope in living. There is hope in knowing that your eternity is secured. There is hope in knowing that Jesus has control uh, over your life, that he won't allow you to uh, die a moment before your time, uh, that he has complete protection uh, over your life. And he calls you. When you step into uh, understanding who he is to live the reality of that now. I see lots and lots of Christians who know Jesus and know their hope is secured, but that hope for eternity has had very little, um, seemingly very little impact on transforming their lives. And when you know where you're going, it should change the way that you live now. It should change the way that you live now. And so I'd encourage you this morning as we close, I'd encourage you to consider these words. I'd encourage you this Easter, whether uh, this is your church or whether you're just coming along uh, for a visit, I'd encourage you to consider because we know, as I said at the start, that death is an indiscriminate thing. Death is something that uh, is unpredictable. Like I said, it strikes the young and the old and 
uh, the fit and the healthy as well as the sick. And Jesus poses this question to Martha. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And Martha, do you believe this? And each one of us needs to ask ourselves today, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Because Jesus gives us this path to step into full assurance and confidence of the fact that even when we die, we will continue to live. He promises us the reality of eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it has an impact in our lives. Father, whether this is the first time we've heard this passage or we've heard it many times before, we pray that we would ask ourselves that this morning, Lord, whether we believe that it is true, that you are the resurrection and the life. You declare that, Lord Jesus. Lord, we read in your word the incredible and amazing things that you do. And we ask ourselves this morning, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would guide us as we consider, do we believe that? Do we believe that what you said is true? I just encourage you as we continue to pray this morning, just with your eyes closed. Romans 10, uh, a passage in the New Testament, makes it very, very clear what it means to step into relationship with Christ. There are no uh, boxes to tick. There are no uh, good works to be done. There is no measure that you must meet in how good you are. All it says is this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you will be saved. Did you hear that? It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of us have been brought up in traditions where there were boxes to tick, where we had to live a certain type of life, where we had to be holy in our own strength. But the Bible makes it clear. We confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. And so I'd encourage you this morning that if that is a, a step you want to take, if, you want to, um, if, if you've asked yourself that question and thought, do I have this assurance? Or you've asked yourself the question, do I believe that it's true? And, and you're filling that pull in your spirit, in your soul of saying, yes, I do. I've heard it before and I've considered it and I know that it's true. I'd encourage you to pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to say a, a line and I'd encourage you in just quietness and stillness. You can repeat it out loud or you can repeat it in your mind. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this moment of Easter. We thank you that you lived a perfect life. We thank you that you died for us. And we thank you that you rose again into life. I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I'm sorry for the things that I've done, but I'm grateful that in you, I can step into life. In Jesus' name, amen.